Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories. Dear 21-year-old Beth, I know you really like to control things and have great ideas for the future. I think those five and 10-year plans are awesome, but you're not going to need them. You can go ahead and throw them in the trash and forget all about them. Your world is about to be turned upside down, but always remember you can do hard things. Isn't it funny what we think when we say, oh, this is what I'm going to be doing in five years, what I'm going to be doing in 10 years, and how different life sometimes works out? Yes, it's like comical, I feel like. <laughs> like every single time, like, you know, a big event has happened in my life, I'm like, are you serious? And I just kind of have to laugh about it and then take a deep breath and move on. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And I know you guys have a lot going on with your family right now and everything. And I just, I really admire you for sharing your story and for kind of educating us more about your life and your children and everything. So I'm, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while now. So I'm excited. Good. I'm glad to be here. I'm super excited to introduce you to Beth Moore. Whether you believe in fate or God orchestrating certain people in your life, I feel like it was no coincidence that I met Beth. She was at the park one day right next to our house in Dallas and we started talking and you know when you just meet somebody but you feel like you've always known them that's how i felt with beth and she was sharing with me about her life and we saw her cute daughter mary and she was telling me how she has spinal muscular atrophy and how she had another son who had that as well she has three kids and two of her kids have had spinal muscular atrophy or sma and she's been able to advocate and help change laws and things to help spread the word. And her daughter was able to be in a clinical trial and have this medication that really changed her life. And it's amazing to hear her story and to see the differences between her two children and what they've been able to do. And I think one of the most touching parts of the interview was when she shared what she learned from her son, William, her son passed away in December of 2019 and he has left his mark on the world. And I just really admire Beth and think that she's amazing. And I hope that you enjoy her interview. Why don't we start out by you telling us a little bit about what you were like as a kid and where you grew up. <laughs> sure. Okay. So I grew up in Plano, suburb of Dallas and I had one brother and lived with both my parents and apparently when I was age three I walked into my mom's sewing room put my hand on my hip and said Beth doesn't do ballet Beth does soccer and signed <laughs> me up for soccer and I spent every day of the next 15 years um, working towards being the best that I could be at soccer I think I wrote my very first five-year plan when I was six 
and I had been watching the national team play. And I, I think they were probably pretty good back then. And I remember just being really little and watching all the girls play soccer on TV and thought, I want to do that. When I was 11, I made the Olympic Development Program. So that was my very first five-year plan. I was very goal-oriented and pretty hard worker, and I, but I always had to have a plan to reach my goals. So I literally, I mean, from the my youngest memories, I would get paper and write out my goals and <laughs> make my plan for my life. That's amazing, especially starting at such a young age that you had that mindset. Were your parents that way too, or where do you think you picked up all this goal-oriented mindset? Yeah. I, I do think it, it was definitely from my upbringing, my parents. Um, both of my parents were like accountants and in the financial world. And um, they were very into just like budgeting and writing things down. And, you know, when I first got my very first cell phone, it came with a checkbook register where I could write down each phone call and how many minutes I spent because you had to budget your minutes back then. I do think that a lot of it came from my parents. They did a really good job. And me and my brother both had very lofty goals at life. And we both achieved a lot of our goals. Definitely my parents and my upbringing. Well, I would have loved to meet little young Beth that was <laughs> so focused and driven. You got makes it all the sweeter with your beginning intro. You weren't kidding, like the five to 10 year plan thing. You literally had them all written out <laughs> and knew exactly how you wanted everything to play out. So what did you picture motherhood to look like? What was kind of your vision of what you thought motherhood would look like? So when I met my husband at 21, I told him I was going to have four children, all boys. Um, they were going to be 18 months apart and definitely had a five and a 10 year plan for both of us. <laughs> so I pictured mainly just a big, loud, fun-loving family. I wanted a house full of chaos and activity and just kind of be the, the big loud house that everyone wanted to gather at. I think I was very naive when it came to motherhood. I, I don't think I ever once thought that my children's health would be an issue and that, that, that they might not be healthy. I don't think I ever thought about that. I think most people don't, right? Like if you look at all the other families around you, that was probably a good guess to say that your kids would generally be healthy. Yes. yes. Tell us a little bit about the experience that you had finding out that William was going to be different. Yeah. So um, William is my second born. My oldest was right at two years when William was born. So I was right on track with my stair step plan. But yeah, when, when he was born, he was born, um, I guess, what they would consider healthy because he passed his APGAR right when he was when he came out and no one really suspected much of his health. I remember the very first time, that very first night, he slept the whole night and he never really cried a lot. And I remember asking the nurse in the hospital, you know, like, what's wrong with my baby? Everybody else's baby's crying. And she said um, that I needed to be thankful because I had a, quote, good one. So that was kind of the... The attitude I had moving forward was that I just needed to be thankful for my quiet baby. And um, we went home and, and we, you know, wasn't, we were a nice little family of four for about two weeks. This newborn sleepy stage is probably lasting a little bit longer. And William wasn't really moving quite like we had anticipated him. It was a lot different than our 
oldest child. Um, we knew every baby was different, but this was a lot different. In fact, one of our friends came to bring us dinner one night and she commented that he looked like a rag doll when I was carrying him. And I know she didn't mean anything by it, but that was kind of like, you know, we took notice of it. Like maybe this isn't right. And we kind of started, you know, texting the doctors we knew and like maybe there's, you know, we were swaddling them too much or maybe we needed to start doing exercises with them. We never thought anything uh, really really dramatic would be wrong with him. But I remember that last night we were at home. I put him to bed and in his little bassinet on his back, like you're supposed to. And I went to sleep and he never, never woke me up that night. I remember waking up in the morning and thinking, oh my gosh, we just slept like 11 hours. And I looked over at him thinking he would be sleeping and he was just laying in his crib in the exact same place I had put him down. And his eyes were wide awake and he was obviously agitated but he wasn't crying. And, and that really scared me because I felt like he couldn't cry just as my mom's intuition, like there was something wrong, but he had no way to tell me. And I picked him up and I put him on a, a blanket on the ground face down because we were going to do some tummy time. <laughs> you know, we were going to fix this problem and put him on tummy time because I obviously, you know, had been failing at that. And he just laid there with his head just straight in the ground. And I actually thought he was going to suffocate because he wouldn't he wasn't moving his head or picking it up. So I, I picked him up and called the doctor and she knew I wasn't much of a worrier. So she had me come in right away. It took her about 30 seconds of seeing William and she sent us over to Dallas Children's Hospital. And we were so, so thankful that she took us seriously and that she sent us right away because that night William coded for the first time, which means he stopped breathing. Since we were in a hospital setting, we had people there right away, and we were able to save his life. I really, really feel like if we hadn't have been there, it, it would have been a completely different story. So we spent the ne next about two weeks in the ICU at Children's, and his genetic results came back on some blood work they had done, and they diagnosed William with SMA type 1, which is spinal muscular atrophy. And at the time, it was the number one genetic killer of kids under the age of 2. They gave him a very, very short life expectancy. They said that he probably would live maybe another month or two. And um, we were told best case scenario, he would make it to maybe 12 months, 18 if we were lucky. Wow. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine hearing that. You're looking at this beautiful baby and someone saying, sorry, but you don't have very much time left with him. Yeah, I think that you know, we're all conditioned to think like doctors fix things. There's going to be an answer. And so that was really hard because, you know, you, you did look at William and he had these amazing eyes and he was so beautiful and his eyes were just so much life in them. And he would look at you and he might not be able to cry or move, but, you know, he would, he would look at you and you just wanted to fix it. And, and all the doctors wanted to fix it. And... And there was, there's not a fix, you know, and that's really, really hard for, for someone to hear. I'm also really surprised that they didn't notice anything wrong when he was born or that, that they hadn't seen it when they do the anatomy tests and they check to make sure and they look at the baby that there were any indications that he would have spinal muscular atrophy or does it just not show up until later? So that's the thing. Babies that are born with SMA are 
completely normal the day they're born. They're missing the SMA gene, so they don't make an SMN protein. But when they're born, they have the SMN protein in their system from their mother. So they receive that through utero. So the, the day they're born, they are completely normal. They will pass every single test just like every other baby. But as the days go on, the, the protein will leave their body and they won't have the ability to replace the protein. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. If you could go back in time to when you first found out that he had SMA and give yourself advice, what do you think you would say to yourself? I would probably say, take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. I think that, you know, you need to give yourself some time to grieve because all your hopes and dreams that you had for your child are going to be different. Don't let anyone put a time step on your life. I think that's really important. We don't know. We don't know. Um, Nobody knows. Um, All of us could pass away at a given point. So don't live under this number of however many months you're supposed to live. Don't let that rule your life. You can still have big dreams. You can still have big hopes. Um, William might not ever walk or talk, but he'll still live a really full life. Um, He can still do a lot of the things that you think that he can't, it's just going to look different than what you originally thought it would look like. Take each day at a time. (laughs) I think that each day is going to be completely uh, challenging. It's going to be very tiring, but that's what's going to make it so much bigger of a blessing. I love that. That's really beautiful advice. And I feel like even people who don't have a child that's disabled or just, just life in general that, you know, sometimes life just doesn't pan out the way that you envision and to take a deep breath and take it one day at a time. And that sometimes the goals and the dreams that you have for your children don't always look the way that you, that you pictured them to be, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to be successful and that they're not going to have a full life. I love that. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through a little bit what it was like caring for William and what the symptoms were or just kind of explain to us a little bit more about SMA and and what goes on in their body and maybe like what people would be surprised to find out about SMA? Yeah. SMA is degenerative. So over time, it slowly robs a baby or a child or even adults' um, life from everything. I mean, smiling. William lost his smile very, very young. I think he was two months old the last time he smiled. Talking, eating, breathing, all the things just slowly begin to deteriorate, and then they're gone. And that, I mean, talk about sense of feeling out of control. I mean, you you never know that, that time that your son looks at you or smiles at you or is able to do something if that will be his last time. But yeah, so so shortly after he was diagnosed, when he was still in the ICU and before we were able to bring Liam home, we went ahead and gave him a tracheostomy and a feeding tube. We knew that over time, he would slowly lose the ability to, to eat and breathe. And so that was important to us to go ahead and be proactive. Um, but he actually ended up losing those abilities very quickly. And before we even brought him home, he, when, when he came home, he was hooked up to a ventilator and a pulse ox machine and a feeding tube 24 seven. 
He required frequent suctioning to Claire's airway, just his normal secretions that we all have in our mouth. And he didn't have the ability to swallow or to control. So those would slide into his airway. So we would have to suction that maybe every 10, 15 minutes in order to keep his airway clear. When we came home, we brought home dozens, <laughs> it felt like, of machines and medical supplies. But we also brought home orders for 24-7 in-home nursing care. Um, we had some really, really amazing caregivers over the course of William's life. But learning to adjust to having a stranger, essentially, in your home 24-7 was very difficult. I feel like I should have taken... HR courses <laughs> leading up to it and I have lots of different personalities and different things that go along with managing those personalities in your home. And if I didn't already feel out of control, at a loss of what our, our plan for our life would be, throwing in this kink of, of relying on strangers to help you care for your son was a whole different level. I mean, at any point, not, I mean, an illness or Anything could really end you up and land you in the hospital, but a nurse just not showing up for a shift or, or randomly quitting um, would really throw a kink in your plans as well. I feel like there's just so many times where even just my plan for the day had to be tossed out the window. We would enter into survival mode, and I feel like we, we were always living on heightened awareness that at any point, like William would need life-saving intervention. You know, we, we would have to just drop everything we're doing and obviously save his life in that moment. Um, adaptability really became more like keys these first few years that we had brought. Wow, that sounds so challenging. And earlier you were talking about the first time he coded. Was that a common occurrence that he would stop breathing? I wouldn't say or even weekly. Stop. Yes, that was a very common thing. I would say every month, every other month, he would have an event, whether it be an accident, like his trach would just fall out. Or, and then obviously he couldn't breathe without his ventilator. Or sometimes he would have an emergent event where a mucus plug or some other object would um, plug the trach. And, we'd and, and so he couldn't get his air in. Usually it was all, all, always usually centered around the trach. And so you would have to very, very quickly, I mean, within you only had a couple of seconds, remove whatever the, the issue was, and then you would have to do, you know, try to revive him, give him oxygen and breathe for him and, and bring him back. And that happened over and over and over again. So it was almost like every time it was like a little bit of more PTSD, if that makes sense, like over and over and over again. It actually became, we had like a plan, <laughs> plan. Like I always want plans. We had a plan. When it would happen, my oldest would always go to the door, open the door for the for 911 and then she would always go to a neighbor's house and then my husband would be in charge of calling 911 and usually the nurse and I would be um be the ones that were hands-on trying to to revive William wow I can't imagine that day-to-day -day stress of worrying that that would happen and having it happen repeatedly and feeling like 
I know when we had talked earlier, you had said that there were just so many times over and over in his life that he could have died and that I just, that's a lot of stress for somebody to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yes. <laughs> and not just on, and not just on the parents, I mean, on the nurses and um, we went through several nurses and I think sometimes the events were just as traumatizing for them. Also for my oldest child, um, she, I mean, she was two when we brought William home. And um, so as long as, as far back as she could remember, like we were always calling ambulances. We were always calling 911. And, and I, I'm sure that for a while, she probably felt like that was just like a normal thing. But as she got older, she probably started to realize like, this is not normal. Um, this, you know, this is not what other people have to experience. Yeah, I'm sure that's, that's also hard because you also care about her and want to have as normal of a life as possible for her. And I think one thing that's been challenging for me as a mom, and obviously I can't relate to your experience, but even just when your children need different things and you have to make a choice on who you're helping, I think is, is just a hard thing to do as a mother because you want to be able to help everybody, but there's only so much one person can do at one time. Yes, yes. I can recall many times where I would be in the middle of, you know, playing a board game <laughs> with my own, saving William's life at the same time and trying not to, like, stop playing this board game because it was this constant like tug of war of I don't want her to feel like she's not important and I don't want her to regret or resent her brother for taking my time so it was they're always complicated I don't think that she she did or does to this day I think that she as she grew older was just very compassionate her heart is so big and and I feel like that she will be a better person because of things that she's gone through, but it's still really hard as, as a mom to, to feel like you failed one of your children because you were trying to, to save the life of another. Yeah. It's interesting you talking about her being a stronger person. I was listening to a, a talk this week and they were talking about trees that are in windier climates and they were saying how when the wind comes in, the trees will actually change. They modify to become thicker and stronger and the roots go down deeper. And relating that to people, how, you know, the winds of life or the crazy things that happen, they really do make us stronger. And it doesn't mean that in the process, like feeling like you're getting beat down <laughs> is a fun experience, but it really does make us better people by having these hard things that happen to us. I love that. <laughs> yes, I like that a lot. Well, can you tell us, what do you wish everybody knew about spinal muscular atrophy? If you could teach the whole world about something about SMA, what would you want them to know? I think the number one thing I want to get across to people is just do not be afraid of people that are different than you. Also, do not assume things about them. SMA affects every single muscle in the body, but it doesn't affect the brain. So just because someone can't move or maybe they can't smile 
or maybe their eyelids are a little bit droopy, it doesn't mean that they're not aware and that they're not intelligent. In fact, SMA children are known for being extremely smart and social. And I think it's important for people to treat everyone equally. If you see someone that's in a wheelchair or maybe someone that's on a ventilator while you're out and about, smile at them, wave at them, introduce yourself. Like we as caregivers, and especially I know my son noticed, we noticed when people stared at us and it doesn't make us feel very good. I know that we're a little bit different than them, but it doesn't mean that we don't want to get to know them. William loved meeting new people. He loved having friends. He was in a Boy Scout troop. Uh, he would go to his friends' houses. He had sleepovers. And he was really happiest when he was just included with other people. Um, so that kind of goes to like, if there is someone in your community um, that's different or there's a child that has special needs, like, and you're having a play date or a party, like, make sure you're including those people. Don't just assume that they don't want to be there or they can't be there. Let them make that decision. If they can't be there or they don't want to be there, um, let them say no. But don't just assume that they don't want to be. Even in those situations where like, you know, William would be invited to a birthday party at one of those air jump parks, which obviously William would not be able to participate in, but really appreciated the invitation. And we would, sometimes we would go and I'd get him out of his wheelchair and jump around on trampolines with him. As he got older, obviously that became a lot harder because he was relatively, like he was about my size. So it would be a lot harder for me to do something like that with him. Give us that opportunity. Like it's, it's very um, lonely and you feel very isolated when you realize, oh, there was a class party and like we weren't invited. We didn't get an invitation. Um, just remember that um, disabled people are people too, and they also have feelings and they're aware. I like that. And that's such a good reminder. And my next question kind of goes along with what you were saying. I was going to ask, what are things that people have done that are helpful for you and your family? And then what are some things that people have done that are not helpful? <laughs> helpful? Um, so we had to become very humble very quickly. We love that people, you know, like all throughout the last 10 years have supported us in so many ways. They've brought us meals. They've mowed our lawn. They've taken care of our dogs. Like if we had to rush to the hospital all of a sudden, helped pick my children up from my other children up from school. Always just ask, you know, ask if there's a, you know, check in and ask what, what they can do that would be helpful to us. I think that I have had to learn that asking for help is okay. And some people even find a lot of joy in being able to help you. So like withholding that opportunity for them to help you is withholding an opportunity for them to feel joy too. Being available is really great. And just letting us know that we can call you <laughs> if we need something. I think that things that people have done that haven't been very helpful is, I would just say maybe just talking too much. <laughs> Sometimes people say the weirdest things to you and, and you don't really know how to respond. And I, I'm sure it comes from a a really great place, but just not assuming things. Try not to make cliche comments, but just be open, you know, open towards us. And something that's just, I would just really caution people in general, just if you're in public, just don't stare. <laughs> don't stare at people that are different than you. That's 
that stuff seems so simple, but um, it really doesn't make a kid feel good when he's being stared at. So, yeah, no, that's, that's a good reminder. And my mom just recently got, had broke her leg in a ski accident. And so she is in a wheelchair right now and can't get around. And there's all these things that are really hard for her to do. And obviously it's just like a little glimpse, but I feel like people have been so helpful to her. And so I feel like to me, it's been very motivating to me to think like, okay, well, what else can I do for the people around me to that kind of person that just comes in and, you know, whether it's like helping with food or cleaning or different things like that. But I'm just so impressed by all the people that have been able to help my mom. And it just reminded me to, to be a helper and that you don't want to cause people more pain. And isn't it funny how sometimes people that you don't know at all can just say the, th- the right things to get right under your skin. <laughs> and so just kind of to be aware of people's feelings and trying not to, you know, make them feel bad. I think people have good intentions. I don't think they're trying to make people feel bad, but sometimes people can say things that without thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> so now can you tell us a little more about Mary and what you, when you found out about her and, and all that, we just, I remember we met you at the park and we were just so drawn to Mary. I think she is just so beautiful and so sweet and I feel like it was Mary that I was like, I want to be friends with them. I want to talk with them because she just has such a light and is just like such a sweet little girl. Yes, she is so full of joy and she she really does draw people in. I feel like people who see Mary like just immediately smile. That just describes her and her personality. And I mean, she's only five, but I feel like she's changed so many people's lives, but yeah, we found out we were pregnant with Mary when William was four and Charlotte was six. Or I guess this when I gave birth, so they were a little bit younger than that. William was so excited. He loved babies. He was like the baby whisperer. Loved the idea of being this big brother, getting to hold his, his baby brother or sister. So we were just super excited. About halfway through the pregnancy, we had an amnio done to test the baby for SNA and we got the re- the phone call and they gave us the results and they said that our baby was a girl, Mary, and we, and that Mary had the same genetic mutation as William. So she was expected to have SNA type one as well. We were immediately devastated. I mean, I don't think a second diagnosis, it makes it any easier. I think it's just as hard as a first diagnosis, but we knew that we loved William and He was amazing, and so we knew Mary would be just as amazing. And we felt like we kind of had a head start, that we already knew about SMA. We knew what SMA life was like and how to make the SMA life the best it could be. And so we just felt like we could take all of our knowledge and all of our experience and all of our connections that we had and give Mary the best life that we could give her. We were hopeful, but we were definitely shocked and, and devastated as well. Yeah, that's totally understandable. And and being able to see, having all the 
being able to breathe and all of these things and then trying to manage doing that with two children, I'm sure you felt very overwhelmed. Yes. <laughs> I thought, well, how am I going to save both of their lives at the same time? But, you know, I figured maybe that meant I'd bring in more people. You know, we're, we're going to figure it out. We, we were very blessed with the things that, that uh, ended up happening in Mary's life. So can you explain a little bit about the genetics of SMA and what causes it? And can you just explain a little bit more about how the genetics work and, you know, with you and your husband and how it's passed and how, how that all works? Yes. So SMA is autosomal recessive genetic condition. So even though no one in our family, no one we had ever really even known had had SMA, Mark and I both were unknowingly carriers of it. About one out of every 40 people do carry this gene, or this mutation. So if both parents are carriers, then the gene can affect their children. And the way that works is that it's supposed to be 25% of the children that we would have would be uh, have a chance of having SMA, 50% have a chance of being carrier, and 25% have a chance of being not affected. You could see how we were very hopeful when we were pregnant with Mary that she really only had a 25% chance of having the disease and we already had one with it. So in our mind, which maybe it's not quite logical, we thought, oh, the chances are really small. So that, that's why I say we were kind of shocked. And we obviously knew it was a, was a possibility, but we were, were, we were shocked when we found out. But because my children miss the SMN1 gene, then they don't make the SMN protein. And then that protein is essentially like the lubricant for motor neurons. So they send the messages from their brain to their body to move, but because they don't have that protein or that lubricant, the messages don't get there. And as you don't use your muscles and as you don't use motor neurons, they die. Motor neurons are a lot like like brain matter, like they don't, there's no way to bring them back or revive them once they're dead. That's really interesting. I like the way that you explained it though. I feel like that makes a lot of, a lot of sense about why that continually, the, the whole atrophy part of it and, and about how, you know, when you were saying when they're babies, they're born just like completely normal, but that over time, their body kind of stops being able to do those basic motor functions. Yeah. Can you tell us about the clinical trial that Mary was involved in and kind of how you found out about it and how you felt when you decided to sign her up for it when she was first born? Yeah. So when we received Mary's diagnosis, we, immediately began networking with neurologists, medical professionals in the SMA community, drug companies, and we were able to locate two trials that she could potentially get into. And the first was a gene therapy trial, and it was in Ohio. We spoke with the lead scientists, investigators, and the lead neurologists felt like this was a really good opportunity for Mary. We actually signed Mary up to participate in the trial, and we did some pre-blood work and everything, and everything was ready to go. Um, but when Mary was two days old, we did some more blood work. She actually showed that at some point in the last week of my pregnancy and the first two days of her life, she was exposed to 
a virus and had millions of antibodies to this particular virus. And this particular virus happened to be the viral vector that gene therapy uses. So the way it works is they infect your body with a virus. It's called the AAV9 virus. It's very rare. It's not a common virus. And the virus brings the gene into your body. And every single place that that virus can get in your body, it brings in this gene that you're missing and delivers it. So because Mary had millions of antibodies to this virus, she couldn't do this trial because the virus wouldn't be able to infect her um, in the way that it would need to. So um, when we were four days old was when we decided that 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 trial was not good for Mary. And we called Chicago, which was this other trial. We talked on the phone with a neurologist and they said, why don't you come up here and we can see if she's eligible for our trial. So when, when Mary was five days old, we got on an airplane and we went halfway across the country, begged a neurologist to take her into her trial. Um, and they, she underwent an array of tests. I mean, all these tests. And she, she barely qualified, but she qualified for their trial. And um, this trial was they were taking experimental medications and injecting it directly into her spine. And um, they were going to do this over the course of uh, four times over the course of two months and then every four months following for the rest of her life. And we weren't really sure if the medicine would work or what, what the outcome would look like for Mary. But we just felt like we had to take this chance. We kind of felt a little bit crazy <laughs> at some point. So we were, literally would look at each other and Mark and I, and we'd say like, we're doing this. Um, we're actually doing this. And um, about, I think it was after her second or third injection, we started to see the medication work. And Mary slowly began to start improving. I can vividly remember the first time she put her hand up in the air and actually tried to like swipe at a toy. Wow. Um, she had never really picked her hand up before. I remember a couple of days later when I was giving her a bath and she was laying on the counter and she picked her heel up off the counter, like her foot into the air. And I was like, I mean, it was only an inch and I was freaking out <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, she's moving her legs. And yeah, then, then over the next, you know, Months and years, she slowly began to hold her head up, sit, stand, and um, now she she walks. We feel feel so so blessed um, that the medication worked. Uh, the medication, this particular one, went on to be the first approved uh, treatment for SMA a couple years later. And at that point, William was able to receive the medication via compassionate use. And he was actually able to regain the ability to lift a single finger just slightly, um, just enough to break a laser. But that meant that he could start and stop a power chair. He could um, play with a switch adapted toy. He could turn lights on and off. And it was the very first time in his life that he was able to control something in his environment. And we were just so happy that he was given that opportunity. He also just became more stable overall and just had the ability to be able to sit in his wheelchair um, for longer periods of time, which meant he could go to school and attend class for the whole day. We could take him on all kinds of crazy adventures and um, 
traveled to crazy places. And I just really felt like his overall quality of life was improved um, by his opportunity to get to take the medicine. Um, but yeah, we feel, we feel incredibly blessed um, that both of our kids were able to participate and get this medicine. Um, and we feel really blessed that Mary was able to live or is able to live a completely different life than William. And every single day we get to witness that. And I think that every day is what kind of started this fire inside of me that this is what SMA needs to be. Every baby that's born with SMA needs to have this opportunity and this life. And we talked a lot um, with William about that. I mean, we celebrated William for who he was and every single one of his games, but he was so wise beyond his years. And, and it was important to him that SMA kids got to live a life more similar to Mary's than his. And so, yeah. And we talked about the, the, the protein and how the babies are born with um, all the protein they need and mm-hmm. slowly start losing it over time. Um, and they don't, they don't have the ability to replace the protein. So the idea is if you can, if you can identify and treat babies with SMA before they lose that protein and before they start showing symptoms, then you could fix this problem before motor neurons die. Yeah. So you can have babies that live symptom-free lives. Like I know babies that are now four or five years old that live symptom-free SMA lives because they had access to treatment from such an early age. Um, We don't say it's a cure because it doesn't cure it. I mean, you still have to take your treatment forever, but, but I mean, symptom-free is as close to a cure as you can get. Well, and I feel like especially you seeing William and having, you know, constant care and worrying about him breathing and him never being, like, not being able to breathe on his own and not, you know, and the functionality of his, of his body and, and, and then having the contrast of what this medication was able to do for Mary, I feel like really shows what a miracle this drug has had on Mary's life and and what it's able to do. It just makes me so appreciative of people who are willing to do the research and, and go to school and be these like scientists that can create these drugs that totally change people's lives. Yeah. yeah. And um, I'm glad that William was able to get the medication as well. And it definitely improved his life, but it didn't have quite the same impact that that it had on Mary because of her receiving it so young. And you were talking about how this kind of like sparked a passion in you. I know that you've been really involved in advocating for people getting tested and receiving this medication. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've been able to do that? I have worked alongside a, advocacy organization, CARE-SMA, and some other parents. And um, I've flown to D.C. personally multiple times. I've actually been able to take William and Mary with me 
um, for several of the trips, but we, we've been advocating for newborn screening for SMA. So when you have a baby, when they're in the hospital or, or if you're at home, I don't know, when they're two days old or a day old, they get a little heel prick and they put, a, they put blood drops on a piece of paper and they send it off to the state lab. And depending upon what state you're in, they're probably tested for around 50 different genetic diseases at that point. And if your baby were to happen to have one of those diseases, you would get a phone call later in that week when the baby's probably four or five days old, you would know that that baby has these disease, has a, this particular disease. And it was super important to me to get SMA on that panel. And so we, we were actually able a couple years ago to get it added to the recommended screening panel for the entire nation, which means that the Health and Human Services recommends that newborn screening be added to these panels. And then each state has to make it a law and then fund the law, implement it. Um, so it's quite a process. But about at this time, I believe it's all but 17 states that are screening for SMA now. And I know that we've worked really hard here in Texas and that we're going to start screening in June. But um, that's been really like, I feel like it's almost like William's legacy. Like it was important to him and it was something he started advocating for with me, even though he's not here now, it's something that is going to happen. Um, most of the people down in the state lab had actually met William several times when we had gone down there to advocate. And so they're aware that this was important to him. And I think that is so amazing. And you were telling me the other day that you met somebody in Texas that didn't live too far from you who had a six month old and was told there was nothing that they could do for their child. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it's so important for people like you and for people to spread the word that there, there is medication, you know, there hasn't always been something that you can do, but things change really quickly and that there is a chance for your child to live and be able to breathe and walk and be able to slide down a slide, which we saw Mary, her first time sliding down a slide, which was so sweet um, to be able to, to experience that and to be able to give people the gift of knowledge of knowing that they, that there is something they can do for their child, I think is such an amazing gift. And I'm, really so proud of you for helping Texas to get there and, you know, these other states. And I hope that that will continue to move forward, that that's a, something that all of the 50 states will, will have testing for and that people will be able to have access to the medication to be able to help their kids. I think just my advice to anyone, which would mean if you receive a diagnosis of any kind, um, I think that it's just, you are your own advocate. Um, you know, when, when you receive that news, like take it, grieve, but rather quickly <laughs> get on the internet, find the experts in the field and go schedule an appointment for them. Look for open clinical trials, find support groups that of other people who have been there. Really, they're going to become your, your biggest resource. And they're going to become the ones that are going to tell you like, this doctor is doing this clinical trial, or this one is, this doctor is really the best that you can find for this particular diagnosis. But you have to become your own advocate. Don't just, just take your diagnosis and go home and 
and think that's it. Like you, you can reach out and you can try to do everything that you can do within your power to make life the best that it can be for you. I like that because I feel like it's easy to be passive and, and just decide that the doctors probably know all the information or know what's best, but that really you have to be the one in charge because I mean, I think doctors try to help us the most that they can, but at the end of the day, they're not living your life and you're the one that has to kind of take control and make sure that you're making the best decisions for your family and for yourself because it's ultimately like up to you and there's going to be so many doctors that will also have different opinions or different processes for dealing with the same thing. Yeah. Well, I know you told us about how William is no longer with you. And do you mind sharing with us about his passing and what you feel like you and your family learned from your time with William? Yeah. Um, William passed suddenly on December 21st, 2019. Um, He was laying in bed that morning with his nurse and they were getting him up and getting him ready for the day. And they had just taken all of his vital signs and done all of his treatments, and he was good to go. All of a sudden, his heart just stopped. And we tried CPR, but just really wasn't anything that was bringing him back that time. It was quite shocking for, for the family, for the friends, for the community. It was Christmas time, so William had just attended his class Christmas party the day before, and he wasn't sick, and there wasn't really any indication that that his heart just didn't have any more beats left. And it was really shocking. And of course, we always anticipated the day that it would come, but we never anticipated it would be so... William, just his spirit was so big. He was so adventurous. He loved just going, going anywhere. Could be the grocery store. He just wanted to go. He actually asked Make-A-Wish to take him on an African safari which I absolutely love because that just showed like how big his dreams were. Um, He didn't understand like why a ventilator dependent, medically fragile eight-year-old couldn't travel to Africa to see lions. Like that was not, that never even crossed his mind. Like he thought this was a possibility. And so I just, I love telling that story because it's like, you should have seen the look on the Megawish late volunteers' faces. They were like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, um, we just felt so blessed to be able to take him on so many adventures. He rode on planes, trains, boats, subways, taxis. He was eight and a half when he passed and he had seen the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Gulf of Mexico, and Lake Michigan. He'd seen the highest mountains, the tallest buildings, the biggest trees in the world, and the biggest canyon. I mean, we, we had been on so So he definitely had a really big spirit and he was so adventurous, but he was also brave. And I felt like he faced uh, every single challenge with determination and he worked so hard every day at some things that we just take for granted. And he never complained. He always had a smile. He was so sweet and so patient and so loving. And he didn't, he didn't have to be, I mean, when you have to rely on other people to do everything for you. Like you can become impatient, I feel like, but he never was. He was always 
just sweet and patient and just thankful. Um, I feel like he really taught us uh, to live every day just in the moment, to always be gracious, always be patient, be brave in, in everything that we do and face, and to just dream big. I love that. Sorry, I just kind of got choked up while you were sharing about him and his legacy. And it sounds like he was an amazing person and continues to be. And I just admire you for being able to be that spirit in him and being able to treasure all those times that you had with him. And I mean, I can't even imagine what this last year has been like for you guys dealing with him and his passing and then adding COVID on top of everything. And I just, I think you are incredibly strong and just um, such a remarkable human being. I just, I can't tell you how much I admire you and just think that you are just I, just so strong and so amazing and your kids are so lucky to have you as their mom and I just I don't think anyone could do what you've done and you've given your kids such like a wonderful gift of you know loving them fiercely and supporting them and dedicating your life to them and being able to help them to have the best life possible. So I just really admire you. Thank you. You're going to make me cry now. (laughs) Thank you. So, well, I have one last question for you, and that's if you could go back in time to any stage of life and give yourself advice, where would you go and what would you say? Yeah, I think I would go back to those first few years right after diagnosis of William. Um, I think I'd tell myself, (laughs) I would get in my face (laughs) and... hold my shoulders and tell, tell myself, you can do this. You can do hard things. Um, be confident in yourself and don't be afraid to advocate for the things that you know are right. And that you're going to come across a lot of people in all different parts of your life that are going to do or say things that you're going to disagree with, and that's okay. You can disagree with them, but always be sure to have grace and respect and never stop fighting. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for being on the podcast. I feel like I told you earlier, I feel like the fact that we were able to meet when we did was totally meant to be. And I just think that I'm really grateful that we were able to cross paths, even though it was only that one day. I feel like God knew that we, that I needed to learn from you and And I think there's lots of other people that will appreciate your story and what you've shared today. Oh, thank you. This is Liz Gardner. Thank you for listening to Letters to My Younger Self. I really appreciate all your support. If this episode helped you, please share it with a friend. Feel free to reach out if you have any recommendations for topics or people that you would like to hear in the next upcoming episodes. Thanks again for tuning in. Have a great week.